So, in the text that we read this morning, there was a recurring refrain, and we can find God there, and we can find God there. In that whole list of things that the psalmist told us would make any sensible person afraid, we can find God there. We can find love and joy and peace and kindness and goodness. We can find truth and beauty. We can find an elevated perspective. We can find that which engenders hope and the promise of possibility. We can find that there because the divine is within us, because the indwelling Spirit of God is within us, and we are carriers of all of those things. We can access the fruit of the Spirit in our trying times, in our troubling times, in our anxiety anxiety response times, we can find the divine center even when the waters are rising, even when the mountains are shaking, even when the winds are blowing, even when our fears are triggered and our anxiety is flaring, we can find God there. If only it was easy. If only accessing this deepest reality could be our go-to response in the tumultuous times instead of our anxiety-driven, compulsive, habituated responses. But it's not. There's a reason that our tradition has to harp on us, and our tradition says to us again and again, fear not, fear not, fear not. Our tradition says to us again and again and again, hold on to hope. Hold on to hope. Our tradition says to us again and again, stir up gratitude. Seek inner peace. And it is the wisdom of those who have gone before us that roots us in the shared experience across the generations because they have experienced what we experience. And in the process, they learned a sliver of truth that says you can thrive In those trying circumstances, you can thrive in those fear-inducing experiences. You can find peace when your go-to reaction is fear. You can find love when your go-to reaction is rage or anger. You can find God here. We have that capacity in us to access the shafts of divine light that are in us. We do. But we also have within us the capacity to be overrun by habit thinking. We also have in us the capacity to be overrun by fear thinking, to be overrun by our conditioned responses, by our reactionary responses. We've said so many times, it is our tendency to do what we have done, to think what we have thought. Our brains are nothing if not habit-run machines. And so consequently, if we have had a response in the past, the likelihood is that we will have that same response again. But here's the thing. There's only room inside of us for one of those responses at a time, one of those reactions at a time. We can have the fear or the anger or the withdrawal or the panic response, or we can have the truth and beauty and peace and light response. But you can't have both at the same time. Now, it is a common thing for us to think that we get overrun by these negative experiences, these negative emotional responses, by our anxiety, by our fear, because we live in a time of 24-hour news cycle. 
We think that it's because of the if it bleeds, it leads thing that characterizes how our culture does things, that that's why we, uh, we are so prone toward these anxiety experiences. But that's not actually accurate. It turns out that if it leads, it bleeds has been around for a long, long time. We've got an almond-sized organ in our brains called the amygdala. And the amygdala has this incredible capacity to hijack peace, to hijack hope, and to hijack gratitude. When the ancient tradition is saying again and again and again, fear not, fear not, fear not, the tradition is talking to the amygdala. Now, before we demonize this little almond-shaped thing inside of our brains, uh, let us recall that we are here because the amygdala did what it does. It was afraid on our behalf, and consequently, we have survived and we now thrive. So, because our great-great-great-parents were afraid of something and avoided that thing, they lived to have babies, and they concentrated that tendency inside all the generations from then till now, so we've got this wonderful little tool inside of us. And it is deep, and it is fast. It is the most instantaneously reactionary part of our brains. We've all had some version of this experience. Out of the corner of our eye, we see a snake-shaped stick. Out as we are standing in the ocean, we feel a fish brush by our leg. And before our brains know what's going on, we have jumped and we are far from there. (laughs) Some version of that experience happens to us before our figure things out, the, the figure things out part of our brains has a chance to tell us it's just a stick. Before the figure things out part of our brain tells us it's just a fish, you're going to be fine, it's all right. Before any of that can happen and any sense is brought to the situation, we have already jumped out of our socks and we are already far, far away because the amygdala allows us to circumvent that part of our brain and go immediately to physical reactionary response. So you can see how that would be a competitive advantage if you're living out on the grasslands of Africa where you're trying to avoid tigers or snakes. Those microseconds, those immediate reactionary responses saved our ancestors. So thank you, amygdala, that we are here. You have been a good friend. And you have been a troublemaker. Because that same early warning system that gets us away from the snake will also trigger rage or hatred or fear and will also do it very fast. Any potential danger, whether it comes from a snake or a person or even from a checkbook or even from a potential terrorist on the news or from a slight that we experience from a coworker that might threaten our position at work. That also registers super fast and also runs super deep. And when it does register, which is easy because the amygdala is always scanning for danger, always looking for what could go wrong. When that does happen and it does find something to fear 
or something to hate or something to rage against, once that part of our brain is stimulated, once that part of our brain is triggered, it doesn't unstimulate until the danger has passed. It doesn't untrigger until the danger has passed. It stays there until the threat is no longer. And once that happens, it can be a long, long time before we go into regular vigilant mode as opposed to hyper-vigilant mode. When we are in regular vigilant mode, we can love and hate as is appropriate. When we are in regular vigilant mode, we can have peace or rage we can have fear or not fear, but when we're in hypervigilant mode, we only do one. We hate, we rage, we fear. So in that hypervigilant state, we are not able to assess appropriately. We are not able to respond appropriately. We don't have a considered or a reflected upon response. We have an immediate pass-go, don't pay attention to the other parts of our brain response. So... Once the amygdala gets stimulated, it kind of takes things over. Now, if you happen to fall upon a pit of venomous snakes, hypervigilance is a really good thing. If you happen to live in a culture of 24-hour news cycle, hypervigilance, not a good thing. In physically dangerous situations, it's really good that our eyes narrow and that our focus zeroes in and that our breath rate increases, and that our heart rate increases, and that more oxygen gets carried to the muscles that are going to give us the chance to either run away or to fight off a predator. In physically dangerous circumstances, the amygdala helps us avoid or to neutralize threats so that we survive again. Thank you, amygdala. But when we moved into agrarian societies, which in historical terms wasn't that long ago, and the threats of becoming some wild animal's dinner was reduced considerably. Or, once the rule of law was established in most civilizations and the number of dangers that we face from outsiders was dramatically reduced on any given day, now we have a greater need to have the considered and appropriate response mode going than we do to have the hypervigilant mode going. More regularly will we need to have the considered reactionary response than the hypervigilant response. But the crazy thing about the amygdala is that any old threat will do. Any old threat will stimulate us into hypervigilant mode. It can be a snake or a shark, or it can be a decline in the stock market. It can be a mugging in the street or it can be the news of someone getting mugged in another part of town. And if you've got a news feed on your phone, there is enough bleeding is leading kinds of news out there that the hypervigilant response can become perpetual. That we don't ever have the time to let it come back to regular vigilant mode. Many of the threats that we face today are probability threats. The economy might nosedive. A terrorist might attack. A robber might break into our homes or do us harm. But the amygdala doesn't know the difference between a physical threat and a probability threat. And so off it goes, not to turn off until the threat passes. 
The problem is probability threats never pass. There is always a chance that something bad will happen. And in a media environment that is trying to sell ad space and using the amygdala amygdala triggering kinds of news in order to sell that ad space, we are often way, way too hypervigilant. Feels like we are living lives under siege. Now, when that's the case, it's easy to be persuaded that everything's going to hell in a handbasket. It's easy to be persuaded that it's all going from bad to worse and that uh, every day is worse than the day before. Now, <clears throat> I, uh, I think this is a great book. But if you're a religious person, you might uh, be slightly offended by this guy's uh, disdain for religion. <laughs> I am not uh, offended by that because the stuff that he disdains is really disdain-worthy. However, if, uh, you know, he is not gentle with religious folks. But nevertheless, it's a great book. <laughs> so uh, if you could overlook that little idiosyncrasy, uh, Enlightenment Now by Steven Pinker, I would strongly encourage you to read it. That book makes a very strong case that is completely data-driven. It is drawing completely from here are the numbers then, here are the numbers now, that says that in about every metric you can imagine, this is the best time in history to be alive. This is the time in history that if you had to choose one moment to be born and you couldn't determine into which social class you were going to be born, you would be born now. Because at every level across the spectrum, on every planet, on every, in every country on the planet, things are better now than they were. We live longer, we have fewer adverse experiences than any other time in history. Lower rates of infection, lower rates of, I mean, higher rates of clean water and breathable air, less garbage, less rats, therefore less disease, less war, less violence. In every metric that you can imagine, uh, it is better than it was. And we, as a society, worry more now than we have worried in the past. Because our adaptive brain has become a maladaptive brain. It is very difficult to be hopeful when we are in a constant state of this hyper-vigilant reaction. It's very difficult to weigh good news appropriately. It's very difficult to weigh bad news appropriately. It's very difficult to put it into a context that is accurate because we've got a brain that's creating this negativity bias. It is very hard to get past that instinctive, reactionary, primal part of our brains to the slow part of our brains that makes considered responses, that the prefrontal cortex part that makes these uh, longer-range, bigger-picture responses. So that's the part of the brain, that prefrontal cortex, where we access compassion and empathy and altruism and peace and well-being. We said this during Advent when we had the four themes of Advent up on the banners that hope is a thing. It's a real thing. It's an experienceable thing, as is peace and love and joy. They are things that we can access. They are things from which we can live. These are attributes that we can engage and in in the accessing change how we live our lives. But for us to access them, for us to access the fruit of the Spirit of God, For us to live in that access and to draw from it and to carry it into the world that we are creating every day, we need to develop the ability 
to access them, and a lot of that ability has to do with being able to manage our brains and being able to manage the hypervigilant response that our amygdala has given to us as a gift. It is to give the amygdala its due, but not more than its due. To give it its place, but not more than its place. And so, the tradition has given us tools. The tradition has given us a basket of tools, the contemplative practices, uh, and in particular, the one that we practiced this morning, the welcoming prayer, designed to strengthen the part of our brain that doesn't usually get strengthened, to bring balance to the way that our brains tends to hyper-vigilant as opposed to appropriate-vigilant. The welcoming prayer strengthens the part of our brain that doesn't typically get exercised. Here's what usually happens. The amygdala gets triggered by some probability danger. Maybe it's even a possibility danger. Maybe it's even a low possibility danger. It doesn't matter what triggers it, but it gets triggered. And then there follows immediately on an emotional response. Maybe it's a fear or a dread or an anxiety emotional response. Or maybe it's a fear coping strategy response. Uh, Anger is a good one. Domination is a good one. It's a good idea to scare away whatever is scaring you, which you can do with anger. That's one of the responses. Or a domination response or a withdrawal response. Whatever is the response that we have to the fear reaction that gets habituated inside of us, we go with it. And we go with it so innately that we just assume that's the right thing to do. That's life. Usually we don't even assume. We just go with whatever gets triggered inside of us. Maybe later on, looking back over the last day or two, we might say to ourselves, you know, I think my response might be getting a little bit out of hand. I might be too angry, or I might be too withdrawn, or I might be raging too much. And if we do get to that perspective, or if someone tells us, you're getting a little too angry, you're getting too... If that happens, then our next step is usually to try and contain our emotional response, usually trying to control it. And for good reason, because if emotions do get out of control, they are a little bit like bulls running around in china closets. They are powerful, sometimes frightening to other people, sometimes even frightening to ourselves. And if we don't control them, we think to ourselves, they're going to take over, they're going to ruin this relationship, or they're going to get me fired, or they're going to, I'm going to hurt my child, or something is going to happen. So we try and control those reactions, and we try and manage our anger, and we try and overcome our hatred or our rage. Here's a couple of things we hardly ever say. Let me befriend that negative emotion. Or let me watch myself as I'm going through that amygdala-driven response. But it turns out those things that we hardly ever say, they work a lot better at helping us mitigate the negative consequences of our amygdala-driven responses. Because suppressing doesn't work over the long haul. Controlling doesn't work over the long haul. Overcoming doesn't work over the long haul. Controlling our emotions doesn't really control our emotions. We just move them somewhere else for a while and give ourselves the illusion that we have controlled them. But they will be back. And when they come back, they usually come back in a metastasized form, morphed into something different, usually something more toxic. So the tradition says, you've tried that? Here, 
Try this. Learn to observe your amygdala-driven actions and reactions. Learn to stand back from them and see them. Watch them. Observe them. Stand outside of that immediacy reactionary response, that habituated reactionary response, and see it. Watch it. Even befriend it. Ah, there's my old friend, my fear about money. I've seen you before, friend. Welcome back. There's my old traveling companion. I've seen you before. I've seen the people won't love me or respect me if they really know me, friend. Yes, I know you well. Welcome back. No, we don't do that. (laughs) That's not what we do. And we don't do it because we have this idea that managing capping off is the answer. But it turns out that if we don't give the amygdala its due, if we don't allow it to do what it is wired to do, it's not going to stop. But the way to handle that is to give it its due, but no more. Give it its place, but no more. And the way we do that, welcome. 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 I let go of my compulsive need for power and control. Welcome. I let go of my compulsive need for safety and security. Welcome. I let go of my compulsive need for affirmation and esteem. Welcome. I let go of my compulsive need to change things so that I can keep my strategies intact. Welcome. 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 If we will do that, we give ourselves a chance of moving from that hypervigilant reactionary response to a healthy vigilant response. We give our amygdala the attention that it needs, but no more. We allow it to do what it does, but we also allow ourselves to return to normal mode, to get out of stimulated mode, to get out of hypervigilant mode. Welcome. Welcome. We let the energy settle back down and we let the deeper parts of our brain have their due so that the upper parts of our brain can do what they do. We give them all space. Welcome. Welcome. Release. 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 Welcome. Welcome. Now, I was talking about this one time and someone brought up what I thought was a really good point that, you know, that kind of sounds like maybe we're just avoiding things that we shouldn't be avoiding. It's a little bit like um, sticking our heads in the sand so that we don't have to deal with things that we really don't want to deal with. And anger must be dealt with head on and hatred and rage and we've got to go after these things. And I really don't think that's what's going on inside. Uh, When we observe ourselves in the throes of one of our reactions, when we welcome, 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 when we breathe, 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 what we're in fact doing is watching the bigger picture. Because it is only true that the amygdala insights are part of the story. Now, they're an important part of the story. We survived and thrived because we got that part of the story. But they're only part of the story. Fight or flight, part of the story. Hate or rage, part of the story. Fret and worry, react and criticize, tear someone else down so that we don't have to feel so bad because we feel down. All of those things, they're part of the story. 
But there's another part of the story that the non-reactionary uh, part of our brain can access. All of those non-altruistic experiences, reactions, responses come from one part of the brain, but the altruistic parts come from another part. And so by slowing down, stepping back, breathing, and looking, we give ourselves the capacity to access both parts of the brain. Welcome. Welcome. And it turns out that in this society where we don't live among tigers and snakes, it is often more helpful to have the normal vigilant brain telling us the story than the hypervigilant brain telling us the story. Welcome. Welcome. I let go of my compulsive needs. There's power and control, safety and security, affirmation and esteem, change the situation. Welcome. Welcome. So I invite you to make this practice part of your practice. I invite you to use your imagination after the fact like we did this morning because odds are you will have one of those surging spikes of energy and you will completely forget to use it. So what you do to help you next time is at night when you remember and you're lying in bed and you're thinking, oh yeah, I could have done that. What you can do is allow that imagination to come back and apply it then. Welcome. Release. Welcome. Because that prepares us for the next time to be more likely to catch it in real time where we can begin to exercise the slow down, step back, breathe, access all of our brain practice that our tradition has bequeathed us. And so in dwelling spirit of God, I pray for us as a community that we would fulfill that deep desire that we have to access the full spectrum of possible responses in our moments. Fear-induced responses when appropriate, but not locked into fear-induced responses when it's not. And may we be alert to the gentle nudges that we need to engage these prayer practices so that we can be moving toward that deepened, broadened capacity. Be that so in us as we follow Jesus. Amen.